Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is David Frangioni, CEO and publisher of Modern Drummer Magazine, Modern Drummer Media, and Modern Drummer Publications. So excited about our new podcast, The Modern Drummer Podcast. This weekly podcast will bring Modern Drummer to life. Sit back and enjoy fresh, fun, and insightful conversations with today's top drummers, producers, musicians, beat makers, and craftsmen. Whether you're a professional, a hobbyist, drummer, musician, programmer, producer, or just love music, this show is for you. Every other week, the Modern Drummer Podcast will feature world-renowned producer, songwriter, and drummer, Narda Michael Walden. Narda Michael Walden's Upbeat is featured exclusively on the Modern Drummer Podcast. How are you, everyone, today? Everything's great, and what a day today to to have such an honored guest. Please welcome none other than Andy Newmark. Yeah, hey Andy, how are you? Good evening, hey. sir. <laughs> Hello there. Hello, everybody. This is amazing, Andy. Uh, you're here. Thank you for joining us. I mean, you're in England. You're you know we're in a different time zone, and I know you don't do a lot of interviews to say the least, but. Um, you know, it's just awesome to have you here. I'll never forget your first cover story in Modern Drummer and reading all about the amazing things that you're up to musically. Billy, take us, take it. I mean, you're, yeah, a, good that, uh, you're a fan that, as I am. Let's, let's go through his career and, and, uh, and get everybody up to speed. That cover, I think that was in February of 1984, I believe. Rick Mattingly did an amazing, that was a pretty in-depth, and it was after a, of course, uh, the double fantasy record and 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 your career at that point, it was like, it, it's just mind-blowing. I mean, you, you know, me growing up, I was always into, everybody knows that knows me, I was always into studio musicians more than I was into anybody else because I liked songs and I liked stuff that was played on the radio. So, of course, you became one of my guys that I went out to buy every record after I discovered who you were and... I bought records and discovered people because you were on those, those records. So one of the first uh, things, I guess, that brought you to big major attention, I think, was when you joined Sly and the Family Stone, when you took over for Greg, and you recorded the Fresh album. Was that your first big... Uh, it, it wasn't the first. The, uh, the very first record I did... Uh, with a, a a name noteworthy artist who had some success 
was uh, in 1971 with Carly Simon, the complete polar opposite of Sly and the Family Stone. Absolutely. And I did, uh, we came to England, as I mentioned to David earlier, we arrived in London on my birthday, July 14, 1971, my first trip to England. We made the album Anticipation, which had the hit single of the same name with the two giant drum fills on it, the bombastic. And that that became the ketchup commercial later on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anticipation. (laughs) And um, I worked on those fills for six weeks before we recorded them so I could come up with like the most mega fill of death possible. (laughs) Well, those, those those are iconic fills. I mean, if you just play that fill, people will know what song that is. So not too many people get to claim something like that. Yeah, don't put a click track up against the original recording because the fill will not be in sync with the click track. It's a bit all over the place, but in 71, we were not as click track uh, obsessed as we became in later years, but it feels good, so it's cool. No, Um, it feels great. So that was the first album I did. with an artist, you know, a well-known artist. Um, so and- I, had, I had it backwards. See, I thought, I thought Sly was first and then Carly, so I had it backwards. So that is pretty amazing to go from, how did that transition then from somebody so different into Sly well, and the Stone? Well, actually, because I had the gig with Carly, it actually led to me being able to audition and meet Sly in Los Angeles because we were playing, Carly and the band, were playing at the Troubadour on Santa Monica Boulevard. That's a, like a club that everybody played, especially singer-songwriters. Mm-hmm. And we were opening for Cat Stevens. Um we also did the better end, bitter end with um, Cat Stevens. No, that was Chris Christopherson. Anyhow, we had two shows over a week at the Troubadour, two shows a night. So Carly would hit it like eight o'clock. We'd be finished by nine. Then they'd Cat Stevens or whoever it was uh, would come on and do the headline act from say nine to 10 or 10.30. And our second show, you know, would be like, I don't know, 10.30 or 11. So I had a break of an hour and a half to two hours between Carly's first show and the second show. And I had a rent-a-car, and I knew I had Sly's address because I was friends with the sax player in Sly and the Family Stone he wasn't the original. Jerry Martini was the original sax player, but they added a second sax player uh, in 72, Pat Rizzo. Uh, his uncle was uh, Jilly Rizzo, who owned the club on 52nd Street, Jilly's. Oh, the Frank Sinatra place? Yeah, yeah. Jilly was Sinatra's, like, best buddy, personal assistant. Right. They were inseparable. Wow. So, yeah. Jilly's was the hangout. Uh, Jilly's was a hangout. So anyhow, Pat Rizzo 
got into the band, and that's a whole other story. And I was friends with Pat in New York City, and he said, Greg Rico left the band. Sly is using someone now. I believe, I, uh, Jerry, anyhow, the name is Jerry Gibson. Jerry Gibson. That's it. That's it. He said, someone's doing it now, but um, Sly is kind of expressed, you know, he, he could be um, open to another player. Um, I don't want to say anything that sounds disrespectful towards Jerry, but I mean, uh, Pat said, here's Sly's address in Bel Air. I happened to be out there with Carly in between shows. I ran out of the Troubadour, jumped in my little Capri rent-a-car vacuum cleaner, <laughs> and <laughs> went up to the address in Bel Air, where I'd never been. It was a private, you know, Bel Air is all private. Mm-hmm. And Sly Stone had bought John Phillips' home. That's the guy that uh, started the Mamas and the Papas. Yep. And wrote all the tunes and put together all those harmonies. Really a genius guy. So it was a nice house. It was a nice house that had a recording studio in the attic that Phillips used. So Sly had bought it. Wow. And um, so I I went up to the house, long story short, and uh, went in, met Sly. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the details of that meeting, just because there's so much ground to cover. But I met him and just said, hey, I'm a friend of Pat Rizzo. He said, you might be looking for a drummer. He said, are you funky? And I said, in complete Westchester white boy language, (laughs) "Uh, yes, Sly. Yes, Sly, I believe I am very funky. (laughs) (laughs) Total white kid from the suburbs. Yes, Sly. I believe I am very funky. <laughs> it was a really funny moment, even to me. And right. he looked at me with his head cocked like, <laughs> who is this motherfucker in my bedroom? <laughs> so he just said to me, all right, go over there and play. And there was a set of practice pads in his bedroom, the Remo practice pads, wow. the little white, the little white what- things. With like a symbol from Bloomingdale's of a child's <laughs> Christmas kit and little hi-hat symbols that came from the same little eight-year-old little kittywinkle Christmas drum kit, completely mashed up. I mean, anyhow, he just said, play. <laughs> and I just thought, okay, this is it. I got 30 seconds to alter the course of my life. I'm going to go for it. <laughs> and <Wow>. I just... <laughs> I just played for 30 seconds, you know, whatever the sort of funkiest beat I was into at that time, you know, kind of a my Tony Williams uh, ripoff of how I translated Tony Williams, who I idolized in Tony Williams' lifetime. I had translated Tony's stuff into my own kind of funkiness. So I played, I opened my eyes, Sly was in front of me. He was dancing on his waterbed. He was grooving. And, you know, I just played a little fill, and I, I played over the bar line, over the one. So 
it's like the fill went through four and then just coming down on the one, I kept the fill going over the one and came back to the groove on the two. Nice. Just something, something I, had, I had been doing for years, just something I always would do. Anyhow, and it like threw him off and he, once he realized what had happened and that, you know, I did this funny little weird thing, he, he was like, whoa, yeah, right. Wow. He, he was like all smiles and said, okay, 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 you're a tricky little guy. <laughs> That's cool. He, he, I definitely, he was turned on. It was a real natural happy moment. I stopped playing. And he just said, okay, okay, so you're the new drummer in the band. What's your name? <laughs> I said, Andy. <laughs> and, you know, a couple of the band members were floating around the house. They came in the bedroom while this was going on. He introduced me. I met them. I'm His father, KC, was there, KC Stewart. Wow. And um, it was like, okay, this is our new drummer, Andy, ba 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 and I'm like, okay, man, this is great. But you know what? I got to get back to work. I have to be on stage at the Troubadour in like less than half an hour. I cannot be late. So you got to forgive me. I really love this. I'm so happy about this. I'm all in, but I got to go. Here's the number. It was like, see you later. See you later, man. I got to go. <laughs> Unbelievable. So now, was he familiar with Carly Simon? Did he even know who Carly Simon was? No, he had no idea. None of them did, and I, <laughs> I didn't, and I didn't tell them because I thought, Jesus. I mean, what if they just think I'm playing with some funky band and want to come to the Troubadour and check me out because they're going to hear something is going to be the complete opposite of funky. <laughs> oh, wow. That's unbelievable. Me, me playing with brushes, doing my Russ Kunkel kind of imitation, playing along with brushes and doing Carly's folky, nice, gentle. Right, right. And I thought to myself, no, I'm not going to encourage these people to swing by. Unfortunately, they didn't ask who I was playing with or where I was playing. That's unbelievable. I thought maybe this is not the right environment for them to see me playing in after I've just, you know, unloaded my best shit on them in Sly's bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> That's unbelievable. So um, I, I have one thing I wanted to surprise. We wanted to surprise you and, and, and bring Jack on because I know you guys haven't seen each other or spoken in a while. And I figured what better way to celebrate October 9th than with you two guys. Perfect, perfect. Jack, did you get my, um, funnily enough, I sent Jack something two days or three days ago, the, the picture of the Beatles crossing Abbey Road. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Thank and, you. And in the picture, they've got John walking in the opposite direction of the other three guys on the crosswalk, and it says, uh, guys, excuse me, I forgot my mask. Oh, yeah, that's been, go that's been going around on, on Facebook, on social media. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So All not right. an original. Before we talk to Jack, because we want to get in with you and Jack a lot, but while we were talking about the Sly record, I have one question here from a James Wallbridge, and he said, Andy, the first time I heard your drumming was on Sly's album Fresh, and of course, the tune In Time. 
It completely blew me away, and I was hooked on how solid your groove was. Can you talk to us about how you developed that specific groove or orchestrated it with the overall composition of the song? I know that that when you got into that, when you did that album, I guess that became your trademark song at the time, correct? Yeah, it's the tune that has survived for 50 years that people seem to like and talk about, certainly musicians uh, and drummers. That's the track that, you know, the Muso track on the record. It it uh, There was a hit single, If You Want Me To Stay. But yeah, In Time seems to be the, the tune that has... Um, had you know lasted in people's minds and you know i'm very grateful to have been a part of you know just a couple of things in my whole life that have had you know a long duration of appreciation but i'll tell you about in time first of all i want you to know that the main signposts in each bar of that beat were Sly Stones. Sly came up with the groove. I walked into Wally Heider Studios in San Francisco about nine o'clock at night after coming off a flight from JFK, New York, got in a taxi, went straight to Wally Heider's, walked in. He had the track set up. It was just me, him, and an engineer. And um, he, he went over to the drums and he sat down And he, to the best he could, he played this thing on the hi-hat that he imagined. And it it was in drum language, it was uh, the four sixteenth notes of, of the first beat. So if it's three, four, with a closed hi-hat going into the two. So but with no backbeat on the two. So you just had, and that was his first idea. And I thought, oh man, that throws me right off balance. I know that's gonna be a problem because you feel naked when there's no backbeat on the two, but that's how he heard it. Like so many singer songwriter, non-drummers, they hear stuff that drummers would never dream up. He had this idea that, I hope everyone's understanding this. Yeah, this is great. The next thing he had was three, ah, ah. So he had the snare drum on the and of three and the 16th note after the four. So you have ah, ah, two, three, ah, ah. Ah, ah, I hope that's translating to everyone. It's that was his pattern. Three signposts in the bar, the open hi-hat into the two with no backbeat, and those two snare beats. And he said, Okay, can you this is what I'm hearing this. Could we can you make something up play like this? I said, all right, give me just go. Go in the control room, (laughs) give me 20 minutes here to get this together. And I practiced it. It was so awkward not having a big two on the snare drum, at least a zap, 
you know, uh, it, you just felt, I mean, as a drummer for me then, I just felt so naked not having something right. solid on the two. Just a hi-hat closing, it really, I felt so out of balance physically because I was just used to playing on the two and the four. I worked on it. Fortunately, I was able to get it together and I just played for 20 minutes until I got comfortable with the beat. And then whatever else you hear around those three little uh, signs in the bar was me ad-libbing around it with extra bass drums and this and that and just kind of mixing it up a bit. But the basic beat as presented by Sly was as I described it um, with, with that open hat on the 16th going into the two beat and then the snare on the upbeat of three and the 16th note after four. Wow. And that's, that's the pattern. And it's his idea. I never, ever would have come up with that in a million years. That happens a lot. People that's come pretty up amazing, with though. That's pretty amazing, though, because you brought, you know, he, he gave you, you his idea and then you brought your element into it. And like you said, you might not have thought of that. And then, look, it becomes like a time. It becomes a signature for you. Yeah. Which is, I mean, I, I love giving him the credit because you got to give credit where credit is due. Clearly, it's his beat. And, I'm, you know, I left to my own devices. I, I you know, I'd probably just would have played a backbeat and you know i never could have dreamed up something like that and i'm grateful i just managed to was able to pull it off because it was an awkward beat and um anyhow so any that that's how that came about um and for people and who I want did to check the, it out in time is the name of the song sly and the family stone from Fresh, from the album Fresh. From the yep. album Fresh. Okay. And, and, and also, th- that record had had like the little rhythm box, right? So you were one of the first guys to actually play along with, with a rhythm box. Yeah, he had, he was the first one I ever saw using it. They were, I think they were called Rhythm Ace. Right. They were these little boxes. You'd see like... That guy in lounge. It's like guys in lounges playing with their organ, right? Exactly. Guys in a Holiday Inn <laughs> with a, a Lowry organ, and you have this little box, and it's got rock one, rock two, right. cha-cha, and tango one. <laughs> right, right. You know, th- that's it. You've got a few little beats, and there's a dial on it, slower or faster. You can't change any of the beats. But... They were groovy, groovy beats and easy, easy to play with because they had little congas in it and they were very busy little beats with little percussion things. So the minute you turned it on, it was fun to play with and you could imagine why um, solo piano players and piano bars would be using it. It's really easy to play with, much easier than a click track, which is only going to give you, you know, bop, bop. But this, this is something, the minute you turn it on, it's like you can dance to it. Right, right. It's like playing with a percussionist. Yeah. And he, as Sly became more and more high and more and more withdrawn from the band, 
and isolated himself. This was the perfect tool for him to lock himself up in his studio in Bel Air with no one there except an engineer, put on the rhythm ace, and it's like all of a sudden, hey, I don't need a band. <laughs> this right, is cool. Right. I got this thing. You know, he just striped the entire eight track tape with one groove. And then he'd sit back and he'd play piano and he'd play bass. He's doing a lot of the bass on Fresh, by the way, because Larry Graham had just quit the band. Very sadly for me, half the thrill of that band was Larry Graham. So honestly, right. when, when Gregorico and Larry Graham left Sly, that was really the end of the, the magical killer band, Sly and the Family Stone. It was over. You know, the magic was the original band, and Larry Graham was a big part of it. It was so sad when he, I, I was there for six months, and we didn't play, you know, any, do any gigs in that time. We did a couple of gigs, but anyhow, Larry was gone. Sly was in the studio playing bass, piano, guitar, and, and it's when he got into that stuff, you know, very vampy, no chord changes, just sitting on a groove on one chord and very, very complete turnaround from all his hit records. Right. Well, that's pretty wild though. That, that that's a, was a great experience. And, and, you know, you, you did so much different stuff. And then from there you went to ABC and uh, well, long after that, but so many different types of music, which was great. Let me let me introduce Jack to everybody who may not know. Um, we had we covered Jack in Modern Drummer. I I did a uh, different view. Like oh my god, that was probably ten fifteen years ago, maybe longer. And um, for those who don't know, Jack Douglas is one of the greatest producers in the world. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I'm blowing smoke up his ass and you know we're friends, but it's it's just a fact. I mean, he's responsible for so much Aerosmith beginning stages of Aerosmith and then up until now of course Cheap Trick um there's so many records that 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 he's done and he engineered I I forgot that you had engineered Imagine John's album Imagine so you guys go way back with John Lennon so let's introduce again Jack Douglas and um Jack what would you and Andy let's talk about John a little bit because we love John. We all love John. And you guys were probably two of the closest people to him at one point. So, And, and worked with him right at, at what ended up being the end of his life and, and career. And it's just so unbelievable. Um, well, you know. Share, share with us, please. I didn't see, after the backing tracks were done at Hit Factory by late August, I never saw John again. So... Jack and would have had double fantasy, right? Double uh, fantasy, you refer yeah. To. Double fantasy, okay. Milk and honey, well, two and albums, milk, milk and honey, and then yeah, we did tracking for, for, for enough for two LPs, but I never saw John or spoke to him again once we had the last tracking session at Hit Factory. Um, but Jack, of course, would have been with John, I, I mean, very close up to the if not the night of his murder, I believe. Is it, weren't you with at the record plant the night he was murdered? Yes. Yeah, I was with him that, that last night. Yeah. But, uh, let's talk about uh, his birthday. Um, I don't know if, I, I guess by October, 
ninth, you were you were gone, but we did celebrate his fortieth birthday in the studio, which was a blast. So it's really cool to to have celebrated his fortieth and and now his eightieth. But but let's go back to to when we put that rhythm section together, when we put the band together. Um, John gave me carte blanche. He said, "You put together a, a band for me, and and be sure." I don't care who it is. You you take care of that, but be sure that it's my contemporaries, so that so that if I call out some song, you know, whether it, it was an Everly Brothers or, or you know whoever, an Elvis tune, these guys will know it, and if I want to jam on it, they will. And so um, I started making my list, and I always I was such a Roxy music fan. I thought, here's a chance to get to work with a drummer I always wanted to work with. And, you know, I just had a great feeling about having Andy on the session. I mean, just for me, it was going to be like a dream to have Andy and Tony Levin working together. And and I just thought, well, this is going to be cool. And having that freedom, you know, uh, I went ahead and booked. I can't remember how I reached you, Andy. Maybe... Stan Vincent did it for me, but I'll tell you, your your assistant secretary um, left a message on my uh, tape machine, like we had then, my answer tape machine, uh, at Thirty Fifth Street uh, in my the apart Carly Simon's old apartment. She gave it to me when she married James Taylor. I got this beautiful apartment at 35th Street between Lex and 3rd. But anyhow, I was in Europe, in Italy with Roxy Music, but your secretary left a voice message on my answer machine in my apartment on 35th Street. My wife at the time, uh, English girl actually, heard the message. She called me in Italy and said, you got a message here from Jack Douglas's assistant uh, asking you about, could you get in touch with her about some recording sessions in August? This would have been late June, late June. Um, and I, I got the number off my, uh, my girlfriend, partner, wife, or whatever. Um, and I called your girl. And she said, hi, I work for Jack Douglas, and we're doing some sessions. Are you available, like, around the first week in August for, you know, two or three weeks? And at some point, she did tell me who the artist was, though I think she had trepidation about telling me, but she did. She leaked it. I know no one wanted word to get out for a while, but she said, maybe I just asked. And she said, well, it's, it's for John Lennon. And uh, yeah, it's the hit factory. And uh, the de- Monday to Friday, you know, one o'clock to 10 p.m., double union scale, ba 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 Are you good for the dates? I said, uh, hang on, let me think about that for a minute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how your girl your girl got hold of me oh okay great i'll have to so so now was the roxy what happened with roxy music was that tour gonna end did it work out that that just happened to end thank 
thank you, Jesus, even though I'm an atheist. <laughs> thank you, Jesus, because the tour, the tour, well, I, I was waiting for Jack's assistant on the edge of my chair in the hotel room in Rimini, Italy, going, oh, no, what's the start date? What's the start date? Please, please tell me it's going to be after July 20th, because the tour was booked till July 20th in Europe. And I knew you couldn't quit a tour like that back then and send in a substitute drummer. You might get away with that today, the way things are. Players are more interchangeable. But there's no way I was going to be able to bail on the tour. And I, when I said, oh, what are the start dates? What will? And I'm just going, oh, please, after July. And she said, oh, yes, yeah, so about first week in August. I'm like, oh, thank you. Thank you. Lord, have mercy. Well, I'm going to thank the same God. <laughs> and when I see her, though I don't remember her name, actually, I'll, I'll have to look. I'll have to thank her for getting in touch with you and give her hell for letting you know who the artist was. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jack, Jack did it's you... a good thing you booked it so far in advance, you know, because you were able, Andy, you were able to make it work. Every, you know, that was, that's a lot of times uh, like, yeah, it starts tomorrow, you know, or can you be here in four hours? But this was really well orchestrated. So that's, if, that's listen, not a blessing. If I had to have said no, because the start date was before the end of the Roxy music tour, I would have been devastated forever. <laughs> I mean, but it worked especially out. The, and then especially knowing that who, who it was for, especially knowing that. Right. that, at that now point, you know it was John Lennon. So you get, so let's fast forward. You get to the studio, day one, 1 p.m. Start oh, we, had, we had rehearsals first. We had uh, about two weeks or 10 days of pre-production at SIR. Oh, okay. All right, so but take I, us through that. Start at the beginning of the musical relationship. I wasn't at SIR, though. I, Jack, I didn't make any of the rehearsals. Maybe I was still in Europe. Yeah. I, I never made any of the rehearsals. I read about them up at his apartment in the Dakota. You well, guys we, running through tunes. Yeah, we, we did the last rehearsal at the Dakota. Uh, but I never attended. Uh, I, I guess... I, so it's just you and Tony and... Uh, of course, Earl Slick, I didn't bring into the last minute because I didn't want him to know the songs. I wanted, that was my wild card. Uh, somebody who would just uh, improvise uh, and just, get, you know, learn on the spot. Uh, but uh, George Small, and we charted everything. So it was, uh, but those guys didn't know. And uh, Yui was on that, right? Yuma McCracken? Yeah, there was that classic line uh, in the studio when uh, when John uh, saw you, when Yui was sitting there and John walked up to him and said, "You know, I like your work with Paul. It was very good. You know, that was just a rehearsal for me." <laughs> <laughs> that was in the film. That was so. That was one of the greatest lines. That's typical. That's typical John. It's like yeah, and Yui, you know, and Yui, as far yeah. as you know. It, as far as keeping it a secret, just besides Jack now going to letting his assistant know that she shouldn't have told me. And I'm like, oh, yes, yes. Don't worry. Your secret is safe with me, girl. <laughs> you know what I did? I left the hotel room, went straight to sound check, and told Paul Carrick 
and Neil Hubbard and Alan Spenner, the three guys <laughs> in the van. Guess what? I just got booked to do John Lennon's next record. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they kept it. The good thing there were no reporters around at Soundcheck. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how it's under wraps. I know Paul quite well. I I wrote songs with Paul for Frankie Miller. Paul's a great guy. Yeah. Paul Carrick? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anyhow. Well, yeah, besides Squeeze, I love all his solo stuff. Yeah, no, it's just amazing. All right, let's 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 get into the studio. Let's get, let's, we're in the studio now. So let's, let's take it from there. Um, well, I mean, we set up that first day. Uh, uh, one of the, again, fun things I remember about the first day was passing out the charts to everybody. And everyone's on their mute, has their music stands. Of course, John didn't need a chart. So he wrote the songs. And, uh, and I said to, I said to Earl Slick, who was now in there for the first time with his red shoes, which everyone thought was a riot. <laughs> I said to him, do you read? And he said, oh yeah, I read. So he's sitting next to Hugh McCracken. Hugh McCracken, when, when Slick isn't looking, Hugh McCracken goes over and turns his sheet music upside down. And then we start the tune and, uh, and Slick is making believe that he's reading a sheet music, which is upside down on his music stand. But really, he's just looking over at Yui to see if he can guess the chords. <laughs> oh, yeah. had <laughs> 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 to stop. But, I, you know, that was the feeling in the studio from day one on, is just that we all had a great time working with John. The vibe was so good. I mean, I couldn't have been more proud of the guys in the band that the, 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 it felt like a band to John, which was so important. And, and, uh, um, they, everybody was just into it so much. And, and John would, would, you know, give directions from in the booth and these guys would be on it. And, um, lucky for me, because I knew John was kind of an impatient, uh, um, man, but lucky for me, I could keep the sessions rolling along and we had a lot of work to do. Basically for me, it was, was it was doing four albums. I had two artists and two albums to do. And, um, and we just managed to move it along really, really smoothly. And we had fun and there were jams and the groove between uh, uh, Tony and Andy was exactly what I could hope for. I mean that that bass and drum sound has become now classic, and you know people ask me all the time, you know the sound of that record. I mean the bass and drums. I mean you got to give uh, um, Lee DiCarlo his, you know his kudos. He, mm. He's amazing. And Is Lee still alive? Yeah, yeah. He's retired. He's a he runs a fishing boat out of Florida in the in the <clears> winter <throat> and Maine in the summer. That's all he does. That's all he ever wanted to do, and that's what he does. Uh, but he was a brilliant engineer, and it was a great board, that old Neef. But that sound is really Andy and Tony. It's it just a great lock, and, and the way, uh, although, although Lee used to complain to you, I hit the snare harder. You hit it as it was supposed to be hit. And so before the session would begin, 
Lee would and I would be in there, and Lee would put a pair of pencils out on the snare drum, and then come out when Andy walked in and goes, "Oh, so that's the problem. See, you you, you can't play with pencils." I remember, I remember <laughs> that, and I kept and I kept thinking. Gee, you know, I'm a I'm a fairly hard hitter. I mean, <laughs> I'm certainly no jazz drummer. I'm a fairly hard hitter. I, I God, I, it's funny. It's not translating into the booth. I mean, I definitely was like, Lee wants me to play harder. But uh, well, anyhow, it was funny. I remember the pencils. Yeah, the pencils <laughs> on the snare drum. Oh, that's the problem. Okay. Now, Andy, Andy was this the first time that you met John? I met him for uh, two minutes in 74. He came out to see George Harrison's concert at the Nassau Coliseum in Long Island. He showed up at the gig. And so I met him for two seconds and him and Yoko and just shook his hand as I, hi, nice to meet you. But he was hanging out with George and all. It was just a quick introduction. I got out of the way, wasn't trying to make conversation with the guy. So I met him for two seconds then. But yeah, other than that, that my well, only- let, well, let's, let's touch real quick on that because we're going to go back to John. For those who don't know, Andy toured on the 1974 Dark Horse tour with George Harrison, and he was on two or three George Harrison albums. So he got to play with Two Beatles. Hmm. All right, let's go back to John. Guy. I'm a lucky <laughs> guy. Go back to John. <laughs> oh, yeah, Hit Factory was, you know, that's when I met him properly and, you know, got spending time with him, being in his presence and interacting with him. Yeah, that, that was my first. And he gave you, he told you, he told you what he wanted on the drums? Did he give you an idea? Or? He was brilliant. He, um, we all kind of wondered, the players, we, we expressed this to each other uh, as time went on, that we, we all kind of wondered on the first day if John was, you know, having not made records for five years, whether we was going to be, have his act together and be confident and, and on it. And, you know, we, we just, we all kind of wondered, but we didn't express it to each other, but we shared it later. And... As it turns out on the first day, my recollection is after we ran the tune with John playing the guitar, he said, okay, I'm going to go in there with Jack and I want to like check out your parts properly now. And he started with me. I, I remember him going, okay, drummer, I will get your name eventually, but forgive me right now, you drummer. He said, I love the beat in the chorus, uh, in the verse, don't do that thing on the bass drum. When you do a fill, I don't like it when you go ba 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 ba. And I said, just he he would be really really specific with me about you know what to do and what not to do. And it was such a relief. He went around the room to every player, went through their part on that song. He said, okay, Tony, I like that bit. Find something else here. Find, no, 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 not that. Not that for the court. Come up with something. And he went around the room and really sculpted everybody's part and showed total leadership, total confidence, wow. total, total focus. And it put all of us at such ease because session musicians need 
instruction and we need direction from an artist. And most artists are not able to provide direction. Uh, many can't, you know, the, they'll say, I want it to feel more purple or some, you know, <laughs> they can't speak our language. John, being a musician in a band all his life, he could speak to each of us, do this, don't do that. Andy, it's too big. His favorite thing to me, I heard this two or three times in, in our month there. Andy, look, just play like Ringo. He's my favorite drummer. Play like Ringo. Wow. And that's all I needed to hear to point me in the right direction. It's like, well, look, I'm never going to sound and feel like Ringo, but Ringo is somebody who's sort of in the same ballpark as me, simple, groove player, you know, nuts and bolts, just uh, meat and potatoes, basic kind of groove drummer. So, I mean, I could relate. I knew about the Ringo and the Beatles record. So, I mean, he that really was the big pointer for me. He said, just play like Ringo. You know, you know he's my favorite drummer. And um, that helped me focus on just keeping it always dead simple. And... Um, but yeah, he had the ability to sculpt everybody's part. Of course, he was a guitar player, so he could get very specific with Huey and Earl about, eh, I like that, I don't like that. We got to get a sound here that's, you know, he really could dive in. And um, so anyhow, our question was answered. He, he's totally, he had his shit together. And having not been in the studio for five years, it didn't matter. He was on it. And he had been sober for five years and not getting high. So he was so clear. You know, he, he, he was, had a lot of clarity and excitement and energy and happiness. And, you know, drugs and drink bring on a lot of darkness. And I've heard stories about earlier sessions with John and, you know, all the carrying on and whatever. This was a different vibe. You know, no one was high. John wasn't high. We were working in the daytime. Uh, he was focused. We were focused. And as Jack said, we, we got things done at a good clip. He was in a great mood. And I just know, having, you know, done tons of coke myself, you know, it, that stuff sucks it out of you. It makes you dark. It, it, it's just... It's not a good thing. So we caught John at a period where, you know, he had been clean and straight for years. He, he was on his game, wouldn't you think, Jack? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, but to say that the, most, the thing that he was most secure in was the music. What you missed later was the thing that he was most insecure about, and that was his voice. Now, he was singing live, and already it sounded great. But he had, he had great misgivings about whether he could, he could do it or, or not. And that's why we kept it secret for so long. Even after you guys had left the studio, he wasn't sure if we could really pull it off because he was going to have to sing. And, you know, he was already singing great. His live vocals were great. I used some of his live vocals and, you know, when I put the vocals together. But um, it was after he did the, the vocal on um, uh, uh, Watching the Wheels. 
that he, when he came in to listen back, that was the first time I saw a big smile on his face that he realized that his vocals were, in fact, just amazing. And he told... Do you think he had that insecurity even in the Beatles? I, uh, well, he said he always hated his voice. Isn't that strange? The greatest rock and roll voice ever. He never liked it. And, you know, that's why he always doubled it. Because, you know, he thought that classic doubling sound would, would hide the problems. But um, he was secure. He first, he wasn't secure about the music because when he sent me the demos, they were accompanied by, uh, you know, his comments, which were things like, oh, geez, same old shit. I'll have to give this song to Ringo, which eventually I did give Ringo a song. Um, but but uh, he, was, he didn't think they were good. And, and, you know, he wanted me to call him and let him know whether we, out of all that material he sent me, there was an album. And, um, and also I had... Uh, Yoko's material. And let me point out one thing here before I, I, I continue with this train of thought, is that the same respect that the band and effort that the band gave to John, they also gave to Yoko, which created, you know, like her best tracks that, that have ever been done. And I did four albums with her. And, and this was, you know, this stuff was stunning and, you know, way ahead of its time. So I, I always wanted to thank everyone and Andy for the hard work uh, because Yoko was a person who would say she wanted it more purple. She couldn't, you know, that was something she couldn't do. And, and we would have to interpret her, what she was feeling for the record and it was well done. Um, but, uh, but John was, was uh, he, he asked me if he, we had any material. I told him after listening to two cassettes of, filled with music that he should just put the cassettes out. That's how good it is. So, and they were really primitive. But they had a certain, you know, coolness about them. And, and he said, well, I take that to mean that the, you think the material is good. And so, you know, we did, we picked material and did it in a fashion and an order that we thought, this one first, and then uh, this one will be the second release, which turned out to be Milk and Honey, but which was unfinished. Luckily, we had the live vocals. So wow. he was, although secure with the music and with the band, of course, and listening to the tracks, the, his vocals were a problem for him. My, uh, my, <laughs> my all-time favorite song of all time, you know, people, it's hard to pick one song. People always ask me, well, what's your favorite song of all time? Like, and believe it or not, personally, for me, to have you two guys here, because everyone who knows me, or maybe they don't know, but my favorite song of all time is Woman. And wow. you're responsible for the drums on that, and you're responsible for producing that. And, of course, John wrote that song. But to me, that when you said he said be Ringo, I mean, to me, that was a Beatles song almost. And I think it's the most beautiful love song that could ever be written in the history of music. So to have you two guys, I just want to thank both you guys because I mean, that is my favorite song of all time. Yeah. It's a really beautiful tune. Very yeah. heartfelt. Yeah. And it, it is beautiful. And, and so Jack, if we go back to the sessions when in August of, of 80 did, did you feel 
when and did John feel that when you guys finished all the tracking, it, the whole process was just a real. It sounds like the experience was amazing. Like there was great energy. The tracks were coming together. Like was it really that almost smooth in terms of considering all the other landscapes surrounding this this moment in time? Uh, what was your what what do you what do you remember about those sessions and how they kind of all went as they completed? For me, you know, I've been make, making records a long time, and he had been even before that. And, you know, sometimes you go, well, you know, you go home from a session and you go, you know, I didn't get this quite done, or I kind of screwed this up, or, you know, I wish this guy had played that, or I don't think any this the artist is happy. I could go to bed at night when I came home and feel like, wow, that, what a great day. I mean, this is amazing. Am I living a dream here? And sometimes, um, as I just would be going to sleep, I would get a phone call, maybe 2 o'clock in the morning, and it would be John. He'd call me up and he'd say, wow, this is, this is going great. This is going great. Let's keep going like this. I mean, he was like he'd be cheerleading on a phone call. And, and, and you know, then you go to sleep and you think, oh, my God, this is wonderful. <laughs> it doesn't get any better. And um, he was such an easy artist to produce. I had been, I'd seen him through a lot of different periods uh, where he could be a nightmare and, and uh, because he was drinking. But this was such a different uh, John. It was all the best parts of him. And we had a clear, we had a clear mission and, um, and we were accomplishing it. So I had two very happy artists. Yeah, I recall the same positive vibes uh, constantly in the studio. <clears throat> John was always upbeat and happy and horsing around in between takes and talking nonsense and telling stories. He used to call the Beatles the bees. And he'd, he'd often in between takes make a reference. Oh, and the bees, you know, I couldn't get my guitar tune and the bees this and the bees that. And he sounded really proud at that point, 10 years after they broke up. He sounded really proud of what they had accomplished. He spoke of the bees with so much affection. And, uh, but he was just upbeat. He was drinking this Brazilian coffee that he had in the back room there. And that was his strongest drug, was this like nuclear jet fuel Brazilian well, coffee. And he was... He was flying, man, and the jokes kept coming. He was always, horse could not shut him up. He, he was always goofing around, talking nonsense. Uh, he was so upbeat. I mean, every, and it, it rubbed off on us. There wasn't a moment there where any of us were not just totally uh, in, in feeling great, you know, and We'd all be in the control room on a playback, and you know when well, we. Well, he would occasionally whip out a joint in that control room when it was over. When the oh. night was over. Oh! <laughs> in a pipe, I recall, a very old Chinese pipe. But he would always ask, "Are we finished?" And I would say, "Yeah, we're done for the night." And then. Uh, he, he would have a little bit of pot in a pipe and he'd pass it around. 
<laughs> he didn't want us to know. <laughs> and we and and uh, we listened back, you know, he, with a little zing uh, from the from the pot. But that was the that was it, you know. And only if it was over, you know, then he would have that. He would light up the pipe. Uh, and that you know, was a couple. Of well, you see, years. you see how far ahead of his time it was. Now, now he would. He, he probably would be amazed uh, that it's legal and you know, it's 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 medically good for you and uh, that's how people relax now. Yeah. You know, not not to condone drugs. We don't want to. You know, we're not we're not advocating it for drugs, but it, it, times are different. That's for sure. I don't know, Andy. Were you there when Paul got busted in in Japan? No, that was probably after we had cut the tracks. Paul Paul got busted in Japan for pot uh, and arrested. And that day I saw really what, how John felt about Paul because he was just beside himself. He was like, Yoko, whatever connections you have in Japan, you call them and you get him out of jail. Oh my God, he was like, he, he was just, he just felt terrible for Paul. and. Uh, um, and I guess was she helpful? She was very helpful. She made a few phone calls, and uh, and he was released, I think, the next day. I remember the incident. He was with Linda, and they found it in his luggage. Yeah. I yeah. remember, but I wasn't with you. Okay, that. so that was after they cut the tracks. Again, Jack, but- tell, him, tell him, Jack, about that two-track tape you had running in the back room next to oh. John's coffee. That every, well, Jack, tell him about it. The whole well, because on the on the second day of the session, John came to me and he said, "You know, there's so much uh, dialogue going on between the musicians and you and Lee and Yoko, myself. Everybody's talking. There's a lot of fun stuff going on. It's not just the record that's being made. It's just all of the things around the making of a record that are cool. It's too bad these things can't be heard." Which wink and a nod, you know, he was uh, what he was saying to me was, I'd like them to be heard. And so I mic'd up just about anywhere except the bathroom, the hallways, the little lounge, the different parts of the studio and the control room. They all had hidden microphones. And in another room was a, a with two, two mono machines running at three and three quarters with transcription uh, tapes on, which are 16 inches. So those things, when one finished running, the other one started and they ran all day. And all of the, everything that was ever said or done in the, during the session from the second day on was captured. And, uh, and every once in a while, uh, uh, some part of that is leaked out and, and, uh, and the fans get hold of it. And it's very funny. Yeah. McCracken, McCracken had uh, a couple of cassettes. Yeah, I know, made cassettes, uh, which I good, gave John for his birthday. A good hour's worth of material. Yeah. And um, I got a copy from Hugh. All, um, you, you can hear all the horsing around and how what a good mood John was in and all the goofing around and talking nonsense. It's really evident when you hear those cassettes. He was having fun. Yeah. <laughs> I think they use that in uh, in uh, uh, John Lennon in New York, the documentary. I think they went to some of those tapes for some of the dialogue in that. 
Um, but, you know, I gave all of those uh, to Yoko. And so somewhere there is just, uh, you know, hundreds of hours of, of dialogue. And, wow. You know, and the, that's, that's, the, that's, that's incredible. All the jams that we, you guys did, you would jam on everything. I mean, you jammed on Beatles songs. You, you jammed on rock and roll classics. Uh, yeah. Wow. Well, on starting over, <clears throat> one of the things I heard on the cassette was us rehearsing before we did take one. And John, we're trying to figure out how to get the, the tune in to the groove from that long intro that was not in time. You know, just the vocal singing. And, and we're trying to work out how are we going to do this? And Andy, what are you going to do? And so anyhow, he started singing l different lyrics. He made up some stupid lyrics <laughs> starting over. And yeah. I know one of them was, it's been so long that we've been apart. Uh, I, my knees are shaking. I'm about to fart. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah he, was, he was good for that. You know, we would always be dying in the control room. <laughs> how he was going to ad-lib anything. I mean, he, in the middle of a great song, singing a live lyric, he just inserted <laughs> insanity. It was, uh, that was great. Wow. Was it, was, what, what, did you guys record with a click track? No. No. I'm so happy. Click that that not is so cool. That is so cool. Well, you, you got, you know, you got Andy, but the human click track. I mean, really. Between Andy and John, who had a, also a great sense of meter, you know, those yep. things, they held rock steady. They, they, they just did. And, and John was used to making records like that. Live. Without the, without, yeah, live. With yeah, the band. Sure. I, no, I think, and and I, think, I think that's what gives that record so much feel, is because it's, it's not so stiff. It's, you know, it sways. It swings back and forth, you know, pushes when it's supposed to push it. It lays back when it's supposed to lay back. So that, that's the brilliance of, of that, of recording that way, which you know, Jack, some people can't do that. You know, they have to have the click. Yeah. I think, I think John, if he had lived, and in future someone said to him, okay, John, well, this record, we're going to do it with a click track because that's what's happening. I think John would have rebelled against click tracks and gone, what? Yeah, <laughs> I, I want to play. I want to play like a normal human being with four people in a room. I think he would have been mega turned off by the idea of a click. That's not what he was about. No. He was about now, when you recorded with Andy, when you recorded with George, were those albums done with a click? No, there were no click tracks in 75 and 1980. I mean, there was the drum machine. Sly had that rhythm ace. Right, right. But that never caught on. I mean, all right, I know Gary Wright on Dreamweaver used the rhythm ace like Sly in 77. But the clicks and all that hadn't caught on. I mean, Lindrum was just starting to come out. So in 1980, when we did Double Fantasy, it was not even yet fashionable to my right. recollection, Jack right. can correct me, it, it wasn't even in vogue then to use click tracks. It was still a few years later before it became like standard stuff. Do you agree, Jack? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
on the early Aerosmith stuff, I would go in a, because they could just take off. And if you've heard the, the live album, they would start one place and it would just be like twice as fast at the end. So they, they would get excited. I would go into a booth uh, with a cowbell and just bang that cowbell into their headphones and, and just to keep, the, to keep the verse at a steady tempo. Then I'd let the chorus maybe pick up a little bit and then pull the verse back down. So it would feel natural, but at least we weren't going to the races on all the songs. So we sometimes do a natural click track. Yeah. Well, if you listen to, if you listen to all the records from the 60s and 70s, our generation, I mean, they weren't done to click tracks. And if you try to put a click track up against those records, of course, it's not going to stay locked in with a click. But all the records of that era, generally speaking, they felt good. Yeah. So, but you know that there's no way that you could have put any Beatle record or Stones record or The Who or Zeppelin. You it would never link up to a click. But they felt great. And my feeling is one of the reasons all those those four bands and all the bands then had so much character is that they were not forced to play to a click track and that each drummer had his own vibe and that the bands had their own unique groove identity incrementally speeding up and slowing down, but it contributed to the, okay, we know that's the who and Keith Moon because there's nobody like Keith Moon. And I'm sure those records are all over the place the way Keith Moon is spilling through all the records. But can you imagine if somebody said to Keith Moon, Jack worked on, on Who's Next, on the Who's album, Who's Next. And I was just going to say that. Imagine, Jack, imagine you're telling uh, Keith, listen, you got to play in this parameter now. Don't go this way. Yeah. Don't go that way. I used to wonder. He would do a fill, and I would go, how do they know where to come back in <laughs> off of that fill? But they did, and that was the excitement of it. They right. were, they were like a band. Yeah. And um, somebody used to say Keith was more like the lead guitar player and Pete Townsend was just playing all the big chords. Yeah. But Keith was where all the action was, so they followed him. But the thing is, if you stripped that out of the who or, 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 and, and forced Keith Moon to try to play all that wacky, crazy shit to a click track, it, it, it wouldn't have had the excitement and the urgency no. at all. And yet it's not like kids couldn't tap their feet and dance to it. Every, everyone knew where the beat was. You could shake your head to it. But it, it's before things got really anal and obsessive and neurotic with these click tracks. <laughs> and, well, that, that happened more, especially after the, uh, you know, the drum machines kind of took over and then everything had to be... Like even now, you know, I have this argument all the time, even with my son, because I, I say it's watching the music. It's not listening anymore. It's watching the music. Oh, this beat, this beat's not on the grid right. This, 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 this I got to move this over, you know, two dots. It's like, I don't, I still, I still don't like that. I know people recently, and it's happened to me a couple of times, dr a drummer said to me, uh, hey, listen, I, 
I checked the time on these two Beatles songs, really good popular Beatles songs. He said, do you realize that they ended up seven BPMs faster at the end of the song than the beginning? As if, why does everyone think Ringo is so good? I mean, how do you imagine? And I'm like, <laughs> who, who gives a shit? Who cares? Yeah. Ringo had a great feel. And you didn't notice that the records were speeding up. You love the record. They, it was natural. And people today like, oh, my God, I, I put a click up to a Beatle record, and he ended six, seven BPM. <laughs> Just like, that was the beauty. I mean, it was yeah. real music. Yeah. I mean, I, the, I, Stones I, record, you, you, the Stones yeah. records, the Stones records, they're yeah. all over the place. Yeah, they're but not that, even in tune, and that's great, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the tours aren't in tune, so why? feels great. <laughs> well, and that's, that's, what, that's exactly it. It felt great, and the energy was there. You weren't restricted, and the fun came across. Everything about those records, that was the magic. I mean, I've had this conversation with Ringo. I even have a little clip of him saying, I am not from the click track school. You know, yeah. and he's like, I don't care what anybody tells you. I did not do that record with a click. Yeah. Well, things, things changed uh, so drastically over. Uh, I remember uh, after having, I don't know how many hit records, I was doing a record and the guy and the A&R man came to me and he said, we're going to have a, this guy, a mixer, mix your record. I was like, a mixer? I mean, that guy, that's a DJ, is going to mix my record. He's never heard it. He's going to, yeah, but he's a mixer. See, you're a producer and he's a mixer. So they were going to, you know, so now they had to add $30,000 to the budget to have a guy mix it. And, and in the end, the artists turned down the records. That's not the record we made, for God's sake. But suddenly there were mixers. And when that happened, then everything had to be aligned so that the mixer could add his samples. And it became a different world. Yeah. yeah. Well, even now, unfortunately, even now, you know, if you're going to send a track back and forth or whatever, you have to have some kind of grid. You have to have some kind of click. But... That's what, in, in Modern Drummer, of course, we try to teach that, learn how to play with the click. Nowadays, it's so much better. You don't have that in your head. You can put some shakers and tambourines and use it as, as you're playing with a percussionist. So it'll kind of guide you and actually inspire you at times as well. But, I, yeah, when it came to the point of where everything was just so stiff and slick for certain kind of music, yes, but for a lot of rock and roll music, those bands just got too slick and then it just, it, it didn't work. It just didn't work. And then rock and roll died. <laughs> yeah. Forcing a, a young band today that may sound great by themselves on a gig or in their basement uh, with not perfect time by any means, but full of attitude, forcing them into playing with a click. At first, it's going to scare the shit out of them. They're, and you're, you're really kind of stripping the personality out of that four or five guys because some of the, a lot of the personality is their time discrepancy, and that has so much to do with their identity. So I, I think for a lot of bands that get forced into that, 
who aren't used to it, A, it's really scary. I was scared the first time I ever heard a click track. It absolutely frightened the shit out of me. It's so weird to have this thing going boom, 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 mm. boom. And you basically, you're no longer playing with the other musicians in the band. Right. You're playing the click only. It's not like it's a weird feeling, but I think it strips the personality and, and those time discrepancies that are human, it, it strips it out of a lot of young rock and rollers and, and people that are suited to being given a bit of flexibility. It, I mean, that's why the bands of the 60s all had their own vibe and identity, is that they all were imperfect in their own unique way, and no one tried to force them into the confines of digital time. So can you imagine um, Miles Davis kind of blue on a click track? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I think we're going to have to do a part two because there's so much, both of you guys, I mean, there's so much stuff to cover. Andy, thank you so, so much for taking the time today. Jack, thank you for surprising well, all of us. I mean, great to see you. It's an I honor love to have Jack. both of you guys. I love seeing Jack. I'll be back. I, uh, I knew, I, I was, I knew, I knew that it would be man. fun. <laughs> but let's, um, let's, I think we're going to have to do a part two. Okay. All right. That's fine. I'm happy. I love this. All right. Thank you guys you. so much. Love you both. Bye. Bye, bye Jack. Everyone. Bye. Bye, Andy. Wow, this is so exciting. We have Robert Silverman with us today to talk about his new project, Drumology. Some of the world's greatest drummers are playing on this record. Robert, welcome. Thanks for having me. What a, what a pleasure to be here. Thank you. No, it's our honor. You know, I'm going to play some clips uh, in talking to you today from Drumology so all of our listeners and viewers can really understand what this is. Uh, let's play this clip now with a little clip with Dave Weckl on drums. Absolutely amazing. So tell us, how did this come to be? How'd you get Dave Weckl and all these amazing drummers? Tell us about Drumology. This is an exciting project. Well, actually, that song, Wave Runners, was the first one that sort of launched the whole Drumology idea. It originally was one song. And um, I was sort of inspired by the Dave Weckl band. Uh, they have a song called Master Plan. It was on their first album, Master Plan, in which Dave did a double drumming thing with his drum hero, Steve Gadd, at the time. And I thought, boy, wouldn't it be neat to do a double drumming thing with Dave Weckl? And uh, so we approached him um, through his management, and he was gracious enough to uh, to do the track. And uh, 
and it, it just came out fantastic. And I, I couldn't believe it. I, <laughs> when we got the tracks and we edited it all together, and it's just a dream come true. Then, then, then I was bitten by the bug. Then I wanted more. So I thought, well, wait a minute. You know, we could do a whole album of these. And um, so, uh, so we approached some other drummers. Uh, the second one was actually Steve Smith, <laughs> of all people. Um, well, and Steve's, Steve's track's amazing, too. In fact, let me play this clip right now. Here's Steve Smith from Drumology. Me and Jay Oliver have become good friends over the past few years. He's moved back to St. Louis to take care of his dad, and uh, we're just sort of in the same fusion circles. We've, so we hang out. We became good friends. We do a lot of other things outside of music. And I asked him if he would write a song for me and Steve Smith. He happened to have worked with Steve Smith before, and uh, he had the idea of having Steve Smith write a whole conical section. You know, it's the Indian rhythmic singing thing, and uh, Steve did it. He wrote a, this beautiful sec actually several beautiful sections of the song and the idea is i would learn them and play along with them uh jay oliver flew out to oregon recorded it produced him came back with the tracks recorded me put the whole thing together and it's just amazing it's wow yeah and so what other drummers are on drumology so we have the amazing simon phillips which was also on my bucket list you know he's always been in my top 10 favorite drummers of all time very influential when I was, you know, in my early 20s. And uh, so I met him because we put on these big jazz festivals in St. Louis. I sort of helped coordinate them. And we brought in Simon Phillips Protocol. And I, after the show, I, I asked him, I approached him, and he said, sure, send me the track. And uh, he was great. He sent me an entire video of the session when he recorded it. It was just amazing to watch how he approached it and 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 everything it was just really great and he did an amazing job my brother actually wrote the song with simon in in mind you know based on in being influenced by that early first protocol album where simon has the you know the kalimba thing going and the octobons if if any of the drummers out there are familiar with that if not you gotta you gotta get simon phillips protocol <laughs> you're missing out and so he wrote something in the in that sort of you know vibe and uh it just worked out great we also had um the great late John Blackwell. So uh, as many people know, John actually passed away a couple years ago from uh, cancer. But uh, this was, I got to know John about in the last two years of his life. I actually met him in a sit-in jam session down in Clearwater, Florida. I was about to play and somebody came up and said, don't be nervous, but John Blackwell just walked in. I couldn't believe it. I looked up and it was really him. And anyway, so of course I, I um, had to introduce myself and uh, we became buddies, drum buddies. And he, uh, he recorded, you know, this uh, fantastic track with me down in uh, Clear Track Studios in Florida. It became part of the album. And then um, we, we were able, through a mutual friend, to get in touch with Greg Bissonette. Now, that might have been the, the most fun session because he actually did his session on Skype for us. So we were able to sort of produce him you know through the like this you know while he was in the studio and uh he says i'm gonna play this three ways i'm gonna play it kind of the way you gave me as a demo then i'm gonna play it the way i would play it if it was my album and then i'm gonna play it a super turbo version of it a super, and uh 
each of those takes could have been the album from beginning to end. And he's just that good. I was blown away. How did you decide which one? Um, So we actually took the the best of each. We kind of, you know, picked and chose and and edited it together. But a lot of it was from the super hyper version. (laughs) Amazing. Who else do we have? I mean, that's already a drum superstar album. But is there more? Yes. Okay. So then my buddy Casey Adams from St. Louis, Missouri. He's a uh, just one of the well-known drum teachers around here. We grew up together playing drums from the time we were kids. And that's something that we always wanted to do was do something together. So we have him on the album. He's just a fantastic player, great guy. And Jay Oliver wrote the song for us. Actually, the three of us hang out a lot. And so it was really fun for the three of us to do this. It was really special to get to do that with my best friend, Casey Adams. So, yeah, that, that's fantastic. Now, we're already working on Drumology Volume 2, which is super exciting. Um, already Todd Sickerman has sent us his tracks so and it's ready. We're, we're going to release it as a single. And oh my goodness, just ridiculous. He's so well, good. Todd, Todd's amazing. But hold on, Robert. You know, this is this is drum heaven here. But let's stay on drumology one for a second. I'm so excited. I want to make sure everybody knows where to get this and can check it out. So where does where do they get drumology? The wonderful thing is it's on all the major digital platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Slacker. All those things like that. And uh, it can be streamed, downloaded. It's available right now. It, it came out actually October 15th. So it is now live and available to be streamed and listened to. And wow. So everybody, modern drummer, this is amazing. Our community, you got to get behind Drumology. The tracks I've heard are absolutely phenomenal. Of course, we know all the drummers that are on this uh, inside and out. Yeah. And volume two is going to be amazing. So when will they, so everybody get out there and get volume one, but Robert, when does, when should they expect volume two? Cause I can guarantee as soon as they hear volume one, they're going to be waiting for volume two. It's going to be fall of 2021. Okay. So there's quite a bit of time to consume oh, yeah. volume one. Yes. I, there's so many, so, so much good stuff. I can't even talk about some of it yet, but it, it's just going to be fantastic. And is there a website that people should go to check out more about Drumology? Yeah, um, actually, it's my website. It's robsilvermandrums.net or autumnhillrecords.com. Yes. Fantastic. Robert Silverman, what an honor to have you here today. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you for creating Drumology. This is just what we needed in 2020, some real inspiration. Thank you, Drumology. Thank you, Robert Silverman. Thank you so much for having me. Here's another track from Drumology featuring Simon Phillips. Enjoy. Up next is Mike Dawson, Modern Drummer's own MD's MD. Take it away, Mike. Okay, now it's time for the shop talk section of the podcast. This is Mike Dawson, the managing editor for Modern Drummer. This week we are highlighting the D-Drum Dominion Birch Kit with a really nice ash veneer. Checked out the price on this thing before we dive into the specs. So you can get a five-piece kit for $949. Pretty spectacular, especially when you take a look at the video or the photos. It looks a lot more pricey than that. So what you get with this Dominion shell pack is an 18 by 22 inch bass drum, a matching 5.5 by 14 inch snare, 
Rack toms are 8 by 10 and 9 by 12, and the floor tom is 14 by 16. Uh, the bass drum has matching wood hoops, and it also comes with the hoop protector, which you can apply yourself to keep the bass drum pedal from chewing up the hoop. Um, it comes with two stand manimal tom arms, uh, standard floor tom legs. Um, the bass drum claws have plastic gaskets, which insulates them from the hoop, so you don't start chewing away the hoop from the claws themselves. Um, the toms came with uh, Asian-made Remo pinstripe heads, which I thought was an interesting choice. But uh, after testing the kit, it was a perfect match for these birch shells. The snare drum had uh, one of my favorite heads, which is a controlled sound coded with a dot on the bottom. So CS reverse dot. Uh, and the snare drum had diecast tubes, another nice upgrade um, that you don't normally see on kits priced at this point. The bass drum had the clear Power Stroke 3, which is, I think, all-around winner for all applications. And the front head was the solid Power Stroke 3 with the white D-Drum logo. Um, these drums come with the classic Dominion box lugs, and all the bearing edges were cut to 45 degrees. Um, the rack toms have an integrated suspension system, which doesn't really jut out much from the shell, but really allows the drums to resonate fully. Um, what else? The, well, the bearing edges were really, you know, Further inspection, really, really sharp, really clean. Uh, the drums tuned up pretty seamlessly. Um, in the demo, you'll hear I played. I only really needed to tune it one way because they just sounded so nice like that. So it's pretty much as low as the batter head can go, maybe a quarter turn above the lowest pitch. And then the bottom head was tuned up, uh, I believe, a major second from that. No muffling. Um, not in the bass drum, not in, on the toms or the snare, and only used, I used three mics. So I had a bass drum mic, maybe four and a half inches from the front of the head, and then two overheads, which were blue dragonflies. I believe the bass drum mic for this one was an AKG D12VR. Uh, minimal, minimal mixing, just enough to make sure I wasn't getting any room uh, anomalies, low mids and things. So what you're hearing is what the drums sound like in the room. Pretty fantastic. Um, so again, check out this kit. This is the Dominion Birch, which is and it has an ash veneer. So it's a gorgeous kit. The if you get a Dominion Birch without the veneer, the price is even more incredible. But for nine hundred and forty nine dollars, this is about as pro as I think you can get. Um, again, we're going to drop in the audio here, so you can hear it in action, and definitely go check out your nearest D drum dealer if you want to play one of these kits in person. I think it's a fantastic uh, entry level and also all-around gigging kit. If you just want something you can take out and not have to worry about it being too precious, this thing will do the trick. So here we go. Let's check out the Dominion Birch with Ash Veneer drum set. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
Thank you, everybody, for watching this week's Modern Drummer Podcast. Stay tuned for next week's episode exclusively on Podcast One. Until then, stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening and watching. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.